Okay, here we are. Mics, we're good to go. Uh, my name is Silas Sham, associate pastor here at Bethany Northeast, and I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, hopefully, no kitchen catastrophes, just smooth sailing, hopefully. But a couple years ago, for me, um, well, for us this year, it was pretty smooth. We did brunch, just cooked four pounds of bacon, and it was fine. People loved it. Um, a couple years ago, I was hosting, though, a Thanksgiving with a small team of folks from our church, and this was a meal for the community, and so we had quite a few people there, and one of the things I was in charge of cooking was a 25-pound ham. So typically, that's not a problem. I'll throw it in the sous vide machine, let it do its thing, and then whip up a glaze, bake it. We're good to go. It's easy. It's, you really have to try to botch that. It's pretty, pretty easy to do. But one of the other people I was with, um, he is from the South, and he, let's just say Southern food is more decadent than normal, so there's more butter or cream or sugar. And so he insisted on this ham that it had to be marinated, even though it's fully cooked and it's smoked already. It, that wouldn't really do anything, but he insisted that it is marinated in RC cola and um, root beer. So I'm like, okay, all right. I stopped arguing with him, said, let's do it. And so I had a 25-pound ham. He had a 25-pound ham. We're doing our thing. And I have this ham in this oven bag. It's huge. And there's, I think, four or five two liters of soda in it. And it's, over, it's marinating overnight. It's, so it's Saturday night. I have church early Sunday morning. And what I do in the morning, I don't know why I did this, was I figured I'd go check on the ham. So I have this bag. I'm holding it like this. Right? Have to, you have to use two hands. It's heavy. And I'm lifting it from the big stock pot to the sink. And I'm thinking as I'm lifting it, I hope this bag doesn't break. <laughs> and then it breaks. And the ham hits the sink. It's like a shallow sink like this. And um, the ham hits the sink. All the soda hits the sink. And then all the soda like slingshots off the back in a wave over my head and splatters the wall. Like it is everywhere. So soda, ham juice, it's everywhere. Hopefully that didn't happen to you, but that is a real experience, friends. Um, well, this week, as I was preparing for this morning, as we continue our series through Romans, we're supposed to explore chapters 9 through 11. And then we'll take a break, we'll do Advent, and then we'll go back to, uh, to Romans. There's so much packed in here, though, so many references that need to be unpacked to be able to really understand these chapters faithfully, um, that I realized it could be really overwhelming to try and do all three chapters together this morning. So I don't intend to flood you or to like launch a wave of information at you this morning, even though I am always game to have those deep discussions. If you do want to talk about that, let's get coffee or bubble tea and we'll do that. But did you know that in these three chapters alone, there are 45 different Old Testament references? 45. And that's what Paul is using to frame his argument. 45 references. And I think sometimes we think that writers who came before us, they're more primitive. Like, they're, 
they don't have technology or they don't have the internet or things to write in the same way, like with a complexity, don't be fooled. This is a highly technical book. And because of this, it has sometimes been misconstrued when the words and ideas have been lifted out of the text to support a specific theological assertion. There is so much packed in here. And so indeed, someone brought up in teaching team this past week how these three chapters, as it was taught to them, were chapters that broke their faith. So in college, it broke their faith. Because he couldn't reconcile how what he was hearing about God could be consistent with the God that he thought he knew. And it was only when he came back to the scriptures later on in life, after he had learned that perhaps the way he would learned to read was a more recent type of reading in comparison to the broader 2,000-year-old history of Christian tradition, of Christian faith, that he felt like maybe there's more to Christianity than just the tradition that was handed down to me. Maybe there's more there. And so with this in mind, for us this morning, we're going to do two things. Uh, First, we're going to do a quick sketch, explore what Paul's trying to say to us in these three chapters. And then two, we're going to follow in Paul's footsteps as we read another passage in the Bible. So we're going to take what Paul does, and then we're going to try and do what he does with Scripture. We're going to try and learn and apply what he does with Scripture. So a few weeks back, Jack highlighted how there are certain chapters in Romans that seem to follow the structure of lament in Psalms. And so for Romans 9 through 11, this whole structure holds true here across all three chapters. So Romans 8 talks about present suffering and future glory. Romans 9 opens with a prayer of lament from Paul over his people in Israel. And then he seems to move and answer the main question of the rest of the passage, and that's this. Has God's word failed? Has God's word failed? This is the question that Paul's trying to answer in these three passages. So now remember, Jewish religious context, you're in Rome, and Paul is addressing three groups of people. Jewish people, first, who follow the law, but don't follow Jesus. Then there's Jewish people who follow the law and follow Jesus. That's Paul. He fits there. And then there's Gentiles who don't know the law, but they follow Jesus. Three groups of people that Romans is talking to. And so the question at hand, has God's word failed? Paul's response here is, no, it hasn't failed. But instead, my people, people of Torah, Israel, we have failed to grasp the word of faith that the scripture are meant to point us to. So we followed the law, but it only took us so far. And Paul knows this well. Remember, in Philippians, he'll say, concerning the law, I was blameless. He followed the law. But in light of perfection, check out Romans 9.31. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. 
They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So from my own tradition, Pentecostal tradition, I saw this kind of misplaced focus all the time in Pentecostalism. So we spent a lot of time talking about the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of God, and we also spent a lot of time um, seeking the gifts of God, the gifts of the Spirit. And in some ways, the intention there to seek the gifts of the Spirit is admirable. But at times, my, my tradition, we, we lost focus, and we sought gifts more than the gifter. We were so concerned about manifesting the gifts of God that we forgot that we were called to be people of God. So God became secondary, and the gifts became primary. And we missed it, just like how Israel has missed it. We missed God. Does that mean that God's word failed? Well, for Paul, no. But it, it might mean that our understanding of the word or what God was doing among us is skewed. So the passage that Brian read for us this morning continues unpacking Paul's lament. Israel has stumbled. They have, fo- they have focused and tried so hard to practice righteousness that they have missed the revelation of God in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And Paul makes it abundantly clear. Israel has missed it. So 10 verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the telos, which is like the completion, the fulfillment, the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So this means that now, through Christ, we are able to live the law faithfully. Christ's words in Matthew 5 apply here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or, to, or the prophets. I have come to not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus tells us this. This is saying that now, through Christ, Paul... Jews, Gentiles, us, we need to read the law and the prophets, the scriptures, in light of Christ. He has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So think about John 5. You pour over the scriptures because you presume that by them you possess eternal life. These are the very words that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. So over and over through his ministry, Jesus talks about how scripture, the law, Torah, prophets, they point to him. They're meant to point to him. Has God's word failed? No. But appears, it appears that in their reading, some Jews have failed in reading and understanding the living, the, the living word, God's word there. What the scriptures are pointing to, which for Paul, again, is Christ. But Paul says also, just because Israel has stumbled does not mean that they are lost. Does not mean that all is lost. So, skipping down to Romans 10. I know we're jumping around here. It will sort itself out. Verse 11. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. 
So not a separate Lord for Israel and a separate Lord for the Gentiles, for all. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So are you catching what Paul's saying here? God's salvation is made available to all. And this was remarkable, especially in the worldview that was present here for Paul. Even now, as modern readers, I think we can read these verses and place all the focus on how any one of us can call on the name of the Lord. We read verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, and we think about how the playing field has been leveled. Right? We can all approach God. But don't miss this. This isn't primarily meant to be a statement about us. It's not a statement about our anthropology or who we are. All of this is meant to be understood as a statement about God. So God has made salvation near to us. And this is about God who has made, um, who, has, who has come to us in the, in the work of salvation. So this is the scandal of God, according to Paul. That God has made the first move towards all. Whether you're a Jew who follows the law, whether you're a Jew who follows the law and follows Christ, or whether you're a Gentile who doesn't know the law and still follows Jesus. Paul's words here aren't so much a description of us as they are a revelation about the nature and character of God. So this is huge. This is big. Has God's word failed? To that, Paul would say, no. But the way that the law was meant to point to Christ has gone unrecognized by many. So however, in spite of this setback for the Jews, a key revelation in these three chapters, verses, or chapters 9 through 11, is that God has come near to us. And then Paul would say something like this. Oh, and even though I'm a Jew, when I say us, I'm not talking about ethical or cultural lines that we were taught from our history. Listen with me as we read as we reread our own scriptures to understand that in and through Christ, God has come near to all, Gentiles and Jews. So again, remember all those references 9 through 11, the 45 Old Testament references, this is what Paul does now. He says to the Jews who, are, who he's speaking to, our history of who we thought we were, let me reread this in light of who Christ is. And he does that. All 45. So this is what Paul's doing here. There's also partly, this is also partly why this whole passage is so complicated. Um, there's so many ways to read Paul's reinterpretation. And he's collecting traditional readings of Torah and providing resonance with his theological assertions. Um, and that our familiarity with traditional ways that Paul's uh, contemporaries are interpreting the Bible, it makes it hard for them to, to feel like Romans is anything more than just academic exercise. And so, still, everyone pay attention to how Paul answers his own questions throughout these three chapters. The, the method he's using in these three chapters is called Midrash. He's just rereading his own history, his, his tribe's history, over and over and over. 
So I heard a theologian compare Paul to a modern-day DJ who basically takes like the old-school tracks, and then he, he parses them together, or he scratches, he remixes, so that Christ can be heard. That's, that's essentially what Paul's doing. Take that imagery, run with it. For Paul, this is a big takeaway. Like He wants the church in Rome to understand that Christ is the key and the center of all the scriptures. And so to recap, Romans 9 through 11 answer the question, has God's word failed? And it's not so much about our character, but it's more about God's character. He tells us who God is in these three chapters. And then two, Christ is the means by which God manifests God's righteousness. And through Christ, God desires to claim us within his righteousness. And so, Paul participates in and through his engagement with Scripture, with Torah, and by reinterpreting his history, it reflects how the law and the prophets show us who Christ is. The point of this section is to help people from differing religious groups, these three groups, recognize that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So God's word has not failed God avails God's self to all. And this is radical in his time. Paul is saying that Christ has made it possible for everyone, regardless of ethnic or class or cultural divides, he's made it possible for everyone to be saved. 10.12, there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. So essentially, in these three chapters, specifically, Paul is saying, we've been misreading the scriptures for centuries. Let me show you how. And then he parses that out. Now, if we were to end at chapter 11, it would feel like, um, it'd feel like we're missing something. Where do we move on from this whole rereading that Paul does in these three chapters? Well, that's 12, 13. That's the whole next section of the book. Obviously, we're going to wait till after Advent to hit that, so you probably won't remember this moment. (laughs) We'll revisit this. But all that to say is Paul is setting up the whole next part of his work in this treatise. 45 different references. He's rereading Israel's history. So instead of actually going through all the ways Paul does this, I want us to engage in what Paul's doing. We just had a sketch of Romans 9 through 11 to see a deeper understanding of how Paul is reinterpreting older readings in Torah, in in the scriptures, to reveal Christ crucified in us. And so let's do what he's doing. Let's join him in his work. So Genesis 18, verse 1. If you would, find that. We're going to spend a little time there. Genesis 18, verse 1. So as you're finding that, I want to make this very clear. That how we're about to read this text in the Old Testament is one way among several ways, among many ways, of how to read the Bible. So whenever we read the Bible, we should be listening to the Spirit and read the text, no matter if it's Old Testament, New Testament, in light of the life and character of Christ. This is one way to do it. 
Indeed, this is exactly what we see Paul doing in Romans. But this morning, I want you to be cognizant that when we read the Bible, we need to let it read us as well. So the Bible isn't an object that we master. In our reading of it, it reveals who or what is our master. How we read it reveals who our master is. And this isn't by magic. This is done by revealing how we feel, who we associate ourselves with in the text, how we see God working in the text. That's what's happening. So as we read, focus on this question. How is reading this story revealing the character of Christ in me and in us? As we read this, how is Christ being formed in me? How is Christ being revealed? So to Genesis, to set the scene in the section we're about to read, um, or in the section right before our chapter today, God has promised Abraham a son, Isaac. And from Sarah and Abraham, um, and gives Abraham some clear signs that this will come to pass. And then the Lord appears to him when Abraham shows hospitality to three strangers. And then the Lord says to him in verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening by the tent door. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I worn, am I, or after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is there anything impossible for God? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you after this time next year, and Sarah will have a child. Skipping down to verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them and sent them on their way. Now catch this, verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that, I may, that, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall you judge 
all the earth, uh, shall you, the judge of all the earth, do what is just. The Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, no, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham then says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then Abraham says in verse 32, Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And God answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, Abraham returned to his place. So what makes Abraham special? We've read about him throughout this series in Romans. He shows up in two of the three chapters where we were looking at today, in chapter 9 and 11. He shows up there. Clearly, he's important. There are many, fa- there are many ways that we choose to refer to Abraham. Right? He's the father of faith, the father of many nations, the one through whom all nations will be blessed, Verse 19, he is chosen by God so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham is known as someone who does righteousness and does justice. He does righteousness, he does justice. Verse 23, Abraham drew near. And again, we have this whole thing where he says, suppose for 50 or 45 and all this stuff, all the way down to 10. Oftentimes, we talk about the mercy and justice of God being at odds with each other. So we'll talk about the mercy of God, and then we'll talk about the wrath of God, and it almost pits God against God in how we talk about God's mercy and justice. But don't miss what Abraham's righteousness is here, right? We know Abraham is someone who does justice and does righteousness. And so his righteousness, his justice, it's not condemnation, nor is it a passivity towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's righteousness is not wrath or apathy. His righteousness is intercession. Look at what he does. He intercedes. Abraham's righteousness is intercession. And in this way, Genesis 18 is descriptive. 
So we go through this whole thing of God sparing the city for 50, 45, 40, all the way down to 10. A narrative is being described to us. But do not miss how this same description of Abraham is also meant to be prescriptive. Don't miss how, as a Hebrew text in an oral culture, this is meant to challenge us, challenge us to reflect on how righteousness takes shape in our lives. So in this whole section where Abraham and God talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, did you notice who directs the entire conversation? Verse 23, Abraham drew near and said, the Lord responds. Verse 27, Abraham answered and says. Again in verse 29, Abraham spoke and said, the Lord responds. This happens two more times. Abraham requests of God and God responds. And then we get to verse 32 where it is that Abraham, not God, cuts off the conversation. Abraham ends the conversation. He says, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, this is God answering, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So cool, Pastor Silas, what are you saying, right? Let's look at what we know. God visits Abraham and Sarah and tells them they're going to have a son and that nothing is impossible for God. Then Abraham is called righteous and just. Then God tests Abraham's righteousness and justness in his response to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham approaches God and intercedes for Sodom, for 50, for 45, all the way down. But then he stops at 10. And God doesn't say, stop, that's enough requests. God doesn't say, you have three wishes, you've used them all. Notice who cuts off the conversation. Abraham. His intercession stops at 10. And even in the wake of God, having just told him, nothing is impossible for me, nothing's too difficult for me, what do we make of this? Why does he stop at 10? Friends, do you know how Paul would read this passage? Paul would have said, Jesus is the new Abraham. Jesus is the new Abraham who does what Abraham does not do. Jesus is the new Abraham who completes what Abraham cannot. So Jesus is the Abraham whose intercession does not stop at 10. Jesus is the new Abraham becoming the one righteous man in Sodom so that God spares the city. Jesus is the Abraham, or is the new Abraham, who says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul would have said, Jesus is the new Abraham. And that forces the question on us then, would we stop at 10 too? If God has just told you that nothing is impossible for him, 
Would you be willing to ask God if he would spare the city for five righteous? For three righteous? For one? For zero? Would you be that kind of person? Or would we kind of be glad to let our enemies get what they deserve? Would that be what's happening here? For some, Genesis 18 has been used descriptively to illustrate the nature of God. But instead, in our hearing this morning, in the way we've read it, I want you to recognize how this is supposed to ask us or make us ask questions of ourselves. It's intended to develop within us the character of Christ. Would we stop at 10? So where do you fit in this story right now? If you were to see yourself as Abraham in this text, who are you called to intercede for? Have you stopped at 10 when the God for whom nothing is impossible is waiting for you to ask for 5, for 3, for 0? As we are created to be able to respond to God's grace, we're also called to be responsible for people in the world. Who are you called to intercede for? And if we are in this story, if you see yourself in this story as Sodom and Gomorrah, what might be displeasing in your lives? In what ways might other people be interceding for me, for us? Like, how can I live righteously and justly? This is, again, how Paul would have read this text. Rereading this history in light of Christ. And so for us, as we sing and reflect, I want to open space for us. In the corner, we'll have people who will be praying I want to open space for us to consider these questions. Who are you called to intercede for? As you read these texts that are tough in the Bible, how is God revealing God's self in you? What are you feeling about the people in it? And do you feel indignant? Do you feel like they're getting what they deserve? Do you take up the character of Christ on the cross? How are you reading the Bible and how is the Bible reading you? Because this is what Paul's doing all through Romans, especially in these three passages. When we read about Sodom and Gomorrah, would we be the people who stop at 10? Or would we continue, like Christ, the new Abraham, who is set outside of the city on a hill? Jack has talked about it before, how on the cross, Christ is kinged. He's uh, enthroned there. He's seated on the, on, the, on the cross, overlooking the city. Last thing. I was reading from Pope um, Chinuda of Alexandria, old church father, old pope. And he says this about sin and evil. He says, your nature is not evil. Evil is is an intruder. 
Your nature is not evil. Evil is an intruder. And so when we encounter other, when we encounter people who rub us the wrong way, we encounter or stand outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, can we recognize that? And then can we continue to pray through and not stop at 10? If you want to be able to pray, to intercede, um, there's people there for you to, to pray with you. Let us sing, let us pray, let us reflect, and obey the Lord in the way that God is leading you. Let the scriptures read you as you read the scriptures. Let's take a moment.